Well, I've known for weeks we would come to this day right before, a couple of days right before an election, and I've been um, excited about uh, sharing with you a message about politics. Now, you know that you're not supposed to really talk about politics, right? And some people are afraid to talk about politics, but we're going to talk about politics today, and we're going to talk about faith, and we're going to talk about where they meld together, because that's who we are, and that's where we are as a country right now, asking how, how can our faith inform our politics? Now, before I dive into deep stuff, I thought it'd be helpful just to open up with a joke, all right? And the landscape is replete with political jokes, all right? So I thought I'd share one with you. Senate Republican and Senate Democrat are sitting at the uh, Senate dining hall, and they're having lunch together, and they're talking policy, they're talking platform, but it's not going very well. And they're pretty contentious with each other because they disagree with each other on about everything, and it gets conflictual, and at one point, the Republican starts criticizing or critiquing the Democrat and says, you know what? Your faith is so small. As a matter of fact, reaches in his back paw, pulls out a $20 bill, puts it on the middle of the table and says, I bet you can't even recite fully, word for word, the Lord's Prayer. And the Democrat laughs, just lifts his head back, laughs at him and says, you just lost $20, my friend. And a Republican Senate leader said, go ahead then. And the Democrat said, well, I will take your $20, and here it goes. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Before he could even get through with the Republicans and take my $20, I had no idea you knew what it was. <laughs> hey, if you've got your outline in front of you, um, we're going to be studying God's Word this morning, and we're going to be talking about a bunch of things. Um, but you'll notice that I've got some scripture there, some fill in the blanks. It's going to get you to take some notes on some things. Um, and I've also left just a whole bunch of blank space in the middle of the outline because I'm going to be sharing a lot of different thoughts. And, and I invite you to take some notes there. Um, maybe even flip over on the back if you run out of space and take some more notes there. But maybe most importantly, you'd lis listen for the whisper of God and maybe write down any of the things that God might be whispering over your soul. Now, if you're like me, I've already voted, okay? And I know probably several of us probably have. But we are all coming to Election Day together, and we are all going to be watching our TVs as it unfolds. And um, it's not in your outline this morning, but I, I felt led to read a scripture that's not there. Um, so if you have your Bibles or if you have your, your electronic device you want to read with me, I want to invite you to read with me a passage that I have to always remember in these moments from Romans chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 13. I'm just going to read the first five verses of Romans chapter 13. And uh, these uh, were two chapters, Romans 12 and Romans 13, that as a summer youth missionary in France when I was about 14 years of age, I had to memorize. I had no idea at 14 and 15 years of age I would come back and draw from these scriptures so many times over and over again. And I want to read to you from Romans chapter 13, 1 through 5. And it's not easy to understand what I'm about to read, but it's the Bible, and it's true for us, Okay. And, and it's helpful to remember in these election moments. Romans chapter 12, I'm, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold, hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, 
it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. We'll talk more about this today, but one of the greatest roles of government and authority in our lives is to restrict evil in the world. And the Bible says that God puts authority figures in place. Well, it is a very anxious political time for us here in America, right? You feel it, right? You see it. As a matter of fact, I've heard some folks saying, I am so ready for this election to be over. You know, some of us are already feeling that, right? Because in this season of politics, there, there is so much turmoil. turmoil. There's, there's folks blaming this and that. There's, there's accusations happening. There's a polarity. There's division. Even within families, there are divisions. Uh, it, is, it is a lot of fervor going on. And there's political commentary everywhere. You can hardly turn on a channel on TV or walk past a newsstand and not see political commentary going on everywhere. And you've probably even heard of this. Friends are unfriending friends from Facebook, right? Because of the political season that we're in. It is, it is hot. It, and, and by the way, everybody sees this. All of us. This is our climate. This is our culture. And our children see it too. I mean, everybody sees what's going on in America right now. So here's the question I want to pose right out of the gate. Why are we feeling these ways in the middle of this political fervor? And the answer is quite simple, twofold. Number one, there's great passion for our country, and I'm thankful for that. People care about America, right? We have passion for our country. And here's the second one. People are passionate about the issues. People are very passionate about the, the different things that go on within our government. And one of the things that I've learned is this kind of, I shared last week a math equation. I guess I'll share one with you this week. When there's passion, and people are passionate right now, plus conviction, when people are convicted about the way a certain thing ought to be, what's right and wrong, and then if you add just a little dose of some fear, there gets to be a fevered fervor at the end of that math equation. You know what I'm talking about? You add those three things together, passion and conviction, with a little dose of fear, and you will get fevered fervor, and that's what we've got going on right now in America. Now, here's another question for you. Is the divide, is the emotional polarity different right now than in years past? And that's a good question. I wanted to share a study with you that was uh, done just a few years ago because the answer is yes. We are more divided right now than even just a few years ago. There's a group called the Pew Center that talked about this growing divide in a in a study that they do every year. They have a study that they do, they do called the American Values Survey. You want to Google that and look at it sometime later than right now. The American Values Survey, every year they do this study, and it tells you where America is at in its politics. And I want to show you this slide because I want to give you a picture of, of where we have been according to Republicans and Democrats here in America. You notice these, uh, these years. Look right here, if you will, real quickly. See, 87, 94, 97, 03, you'll notice that by and large, we were, we were kind of right here together. We were, there's a little dip, there's a little uh, rise here, a little, uh, you know, by and large, there's a, there was a, a, a uniting force here, even from 87 through 94, 97, even into 03. But you know what happened right here in 01, right? Remember what happened right there with the Twin Towers falling? 
And you remember what happened in this season right here? All of a sudden, we began to go through a political divide and things are so far... This is, these, these polls, these show the difference. There's an 18-point swing now between Republicans and Democrats on issues just across the board where before we were so much closer. And over this last election and then the, the election that came in 08 and then in 12, this only takes us to 12. Now, imagine where we are today. Imagine, this was 2012, we were at an 18-point swing between Republicans, and you know that it's more now, right, than it was back in 2012. So there's so much division in our country, and it has to do a lot with what's happening in the world, and it has to do a lot with what's happening within our own borders. Just a couple of three things. Can we put that up there one more time? A couple of three points that I take away from this little survey from the American Value Survey. Uh, the first one is this. That differential that is swinging that way, 08, 2012, and now 2016, we feel that. It's more than statistics. We actually feel the division. I mean, it's hard to even talk about politics right now because there are so many passionate views and they're getting further and further apart. They're more polemic than they've ever been. Here's the second thing. Uh, the American Values Survey, they found out one of the reasons behind that big swing, that shift, is because most Americans who are Democrats and Republicans are starting to say the same thing on both sides of the line. And here's what they're saying. The party that I represent, that has always represented me, does not quite fit me anymore. It doesn't represent who I used to be. It's leaving me. It's leaving my values. And they're saying that on the Democratic side, and they're saying that on the Republican side. And, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, but I feel that way, and I bet many of you feel that way, that the party that I used to be in line with, it seems like it's just getting farther away from me. And here's a third point that I'll just mention out of this study and how it's going further and further apart. There are more people identifying themselves as, as independents now because of that last fact I just mentioned than ever because they're leaving their parties and they're saying, I just cannot, I'm, I'm struggling with all the different things that the party stands for. So this helps you get an understanding of where we're at as a country. It is getting more divided politically. Now, maybe you can track back with me for a minute, back to your middle school, high school days. Maybe you remember a, a theory or a thesis that was put forward by a guy named Hegel. Um, Hegel put forth a, a, an understanding about how things work in life, and it was called the dialectical method. You remember that? You're going, I don't know. But let me remind you, because you will remember it once I tell you about it. Hegel said there's this thing called the dialectical method. Dialectical meaning two points of view. The dialectical method where somebody presents an idea, and he called that a thesis. Someone presents a, an idea, a thesis, and then what comes to follow is somebody differing with them, counter to them, that will present an antithesis, okay? A thesis is presented and an antithesis then is, th is presented to combat it. And what Hegel said is the normal way of life is that when a thesis is presented and then an antithesis comes against it, there is a battle there between the thesis and the antithesis until a new thing emerges. And he called that, you remember, the new synthesis. He said out of those two arguments will come something all new and better. And he called that the new synthesis. Now, one of the struggles that we're having right now in America is we have a lot of thesis and we have a lot of antithesis, but we're really struggling. It seems like we never get to the antithesis. I mean, I'm sorry, to the new synthesis. You know what I mean? We never seem to get there. And so I was thinking about that this past week, and I just want to talk through a few of the issues with you. You know, we think about something like Obamacare, for example. 
This idea that, or, or we'll call it the Affordable Care Act, right? Which I know it's getting less and less affordable, okay? Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, I think most of us in the room could look at it from afar and say, that thesis, when it was presented, was after good things. It wanted to make sure that people had health care. There was a thesis presented, and then, as, as you well know, an antithesis fighting against it. Now, here's the problem. Are we in great need of a new synthesis or what? Are you with me? We're in a huge need, but it seems like so often we get stuck in this thesis versus antithesis, and we can't quite arrive at what Hegel called the new synthesis. When everybody agrees, we can all stand back, and whether you're on the antithesis side or the thesis, everybody can stand back and say, wow, we need something. This would be a good thing for something. What is that something going to be? Another another issue would, would, for example, be a government regulation, all right? When we, when we had the fall of the economy in 2008, and, and, and the economy just plummeted, and it changed lives across America, the answer to that, the thesis to the, the fallen economy for some folks, the thesis that they presented was government regulation. We cannot have that happen again. We need to make sure we start regulating government. We don't have these, the, that kind of bubble happen again, and it, we got zealous with government regulation. And then, of course, the antithesis is coming at government regulation that says, no, now you're killing the economy, right? This government regulation is killing our economy. We've got to, we've got to deregulate things. We've got to get all the government regulation out. Now, the truth of the matter is, what do we need? We need a new synthesis, right? We need the, something altogether better. I think all of us would agree that we, we don't want zero regulation over, over businesses, right? Because if we had zero regulation over businesses... They could run roughshod over people, and a lot of evil and greed would happen in our country. It, would, it could even destroy our economy. And so some regulation is good, but can we find a modicum and find a synthesis that is a new place for us? Are you following with me? So when we, we could almost go issue by issue, but here's what I wanna, want you to understand. In a lot of these issues that we face, what we have to come to grips with is it's not necessarily a, a black or white issue. There are grays involved. There are grays involved in this. And when you and I look at maybe a Republican platform or a Democratic platform, we look at those platforms and we say to ourselves, I don't know that I really think that either one of them fit me anymore. Or let me say it differently, and I'll speak for myself for a minute. I look at the platform that I have, that I have voted for and aligned myself with for a very long time, and I look at that platform now and I say to myself, you know what? That platform, it is a far cry from my biblical views and the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God. It doesn't quite fit it, you know? And by the way, two things related with that. First thing is, hallelujah. I mean, think about it. If any one of those platforms fit perfectly with the Bible and the kingdom vision that we're after, what would, what would be the need for the church? What would be the need? Government would be the, 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 the salvation of the world, right? It's never going to match the biblical values perfectly. No platform will ever. It's never going to match a perfect vision of the kingdom of God. So you can stand back, even though it's uncomfortable, and those platforms that we might have aligned ourselves with don't really match us anymore because of the grades that are involved. We step back and we go, wait a minute, hallelujah, God. Hallelujah. You still got a purpose on the planet for the church and for Christians to bring redemption. Um, Here's a second thought. It brings humility. Because most of us realize we've got to walk into a booth and pull a lever or, or do a check mark or hit a computer screen 
And we've got to align ourselves with someone in political power who represents a party that doesn't quite always represent us. Now, here's what I want you to understand. There is a, there is a, there's a purpose for government in the world, but we have to remember what the purpose of government is. The purpose of the government is to restrict evil and to create legislation that is for good. That's the purpose of the government, okay? But understand this. The government was never meant to change hearts. That's the purpose of the kingdom. That's the purpose of the church. And so it's so important for us to hold these two things together and say, well, what does it mean to have a government and be political and, and have political ideologies? What does that mean? that we would restrict evil in the world, that we would legislate good, what does that look like versus the the work of the church, which is to change hearts, because the government can never change hearts. So, what do we do with this divide? And what does it mean at the core of who we are? I don't know if you remember this, but when I was doing my doctoral program, I had a professor one day, he was teaching a class, I'll never forget the first day he walked into the class and and he made this statement that I've shared with you before. He looked at us with a pregnant pause right before he said it, and then he said, by the way, talking to a bunch of clergy, talking to a bunch of pastors, 22 pastors from around the world in the room, he said, you are more American than you are Christian. I wanted to stand up and say to him, you don't even know me. You don't even know me. How can you say I'm more American than I am Christian? It flew all over me, right? But remember the audience. He was talking to a bunch of pastors. He was talking to clergy people, and he said, you are more American than you are Christian. You know, for the next two weeks, now he was, he was probably overstating something, but for the next two weeks during that course, that professor began to pull out, kind of hurt, pull out little places in us where we had raised up so much of our culture above our Christianity. And and what I want to challenge you with today is this thought about the divide that is facing our country. What comes first for you? What comes first for you? Are you a Democrat or Republican first? Or are you a Christian first? What really comes first for you? Because if you were really to hear what I've got to say today, it would be very hard for you to hear, you might be more American than you are Christian. It is so easy to let our culture and our politics creep into our faith. So in a little while, I'll read from Jesus, and I'll talk about how Jesus can inform our politics with with his kingdom vision. But before I get there, what I want to challenge you to do is I want to challenge you with a little spiritual formation exercise, and I bet there ain't another church in the state of Georgia about to do what I'm about to do, but... I want to challenge you to do something that's going to be very uncomfortable to you, okay? Are you ready? Are you all right to do this with me? A little spiritual formation exercise? I want you to do me a favor. I want you to um, kind of sit up in your chair. Put both feet on the floor. Get ready. Don't be touching anybody, not even on your elbows. Just get ready. Now we're going to do a spiritual formation exercise, all right? I want you to close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you to pray a a prayer. And here's the prayer I'm going to ask you to pray. Are you ready? If you're ready, say yes. Yes. All right. I'm going to ask you 
over the next two minutes of quietness to pray for the candidate that you do not plan to vote for. And I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer of blessing and guidance over that person's life. Do that now. Open up your eyes and look at me, if you will. Was that hard? <laughs> Ooh, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Can I tell you that when God led me to do that spiritual formation exercise with you this past week, I was in my office. So I just took time away by myself, and I found it very hard to pray for the candidate that I do not plan to vote for. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of my professor in my doctoral program that said, ooh, Stephen, maybe you're more American than you are Christian. Look at the deeper things. Check out why it might be hard in your heart for you to pray for somebody that you don't agree with. You see, here's what I want to get. I want to go back to that question. What comes first? Are you a Republican or Democrat first, or are you a Christian first? See, it used to be that brothers and sisters could talk to each other about politics, right? You remember that? Before it was that great divide that I showed you on the screen, folks could talk together. They could hash it out. Even over different issues, they could say, well, I think this, another person say that. And as they hashed it out, at the end of the day, even if they didn't come to a place of agreement together, they could say, you know what? You know what we are first? Brothers and sisters. Before we're ever something else as, as Americans or Republicans or Democrats, we are first and foremost brothers and sisters. And so it's so important when we think about how does this thing work, faith and politics, how does this work? We have to ask ourselves, what comes first? What comes first? Are you, is your politics first or is your faith first? Now see, I think Jesus, matter of fact, if you've got your Bibles, I'm not going to read any scriptures this morning, but I just want you to, I mean, uh, from this passage, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus starts in Matthew chapter 5 with a Sermon on the Mount for the next, in my Bible, three to four pages over Matthew 5, 6 and 7. He preaches, uh, you know what Jesus does? Jesus bursts on the scene and he begins to preach a kingdom dynamic that flies in the face of a lot that's happening politically in his culture at that time. But what Jesus is saying was, listen, I want to describe the kingdom to you first, and then I want you to let that inform or filtrate or seep down into what you believe about government and politics. And so Jesus, coming onto the scene, Jesus began to paint a picture that looked different than the way people were acting in the culture. For example, Jesus would say things like, hey, don't even call somebody an idiot. Don't even call somebody a fool. He used the word raka. In, in, his Hebrew, in his Greek, he said, don't even call somebody raka. 
Don't call them a Hebrew, because, uh, 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 an idiot in that Greek, because if you do, you are putting yourself in danger of, of eternal punishment. Jesus said, tell the truth. Don't lie. Jesus said, when somebody sins against you or wounds you, you are supposed to turn the other cheek. That's the kingdom dynamic. That's different than the rest of the world, the way the world lives. Jesus said in this wonderful sermon, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. And here's an idea that Jesus gave us in that wonderful passage. Jesus said, we are to pray for our enemies. We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Remember Jesus saying that? Man, if that must have been so hard for some folks to hear who were being persecuted, even in that Roman occupation over Israel at that time. It must have been so hard. But Jesus said, listen, we are, we're kingdom people first, and that's got to inform our politics. So love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said, don't judge other people. You remember that? Jesus said, don't judge, or you too can be judged. Don't judge other people. How about this one? Remember Jesus saying this one? How about take the log out of your own eye first before you try to take the little speck out of your brother's or your sister's eye? You hear what Jesus is saying? Bring great self-examination to yourself before you ever get critical of somebody else. Jesus also said that thing, remember, called the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. See, I, when I read the New Testament and I read Jesus' words, I get the picture of somebody that I could never say was more Jewish than he was kingdom or, or Christ following. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was ultimately allegiant to the kingdom. He was first and foremost a kingdom follower, the kingdom of heaven, and then he let that, everything else from there, seep down into what he believed about the government and the authorities in charge. It, this is a, the teachings of Jesus are a wonderful framework for how we can understand how can we be Christian first in this world and then later on let our Christianity inform our politics. By the way, uh, Paul was the same way. Matter of fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the scripture we're going to read this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Paul was often writing to people who were divided, to divided Christians. So, for example, and when he wrote to the Corinthian church, there were all kinds of factions and divisions in this church, and he writes to them longing to unite them and not have them fight because they're, they're struggling with the societal issues they're facing. When he writes, for example, to the church in Galatia, in Galatians, these Christians are fighting with another, one another because uh, some of them are wanting to be more legalistic and they're wanting to go back to their Jewish law. And some of them are saying, no, there's grace. And they're fighting with one another. And he's writing to try to unify them around the, the kingdom. When he, when he writes to the church in Philippians, he is writing because two women have, have infiltrated the church and had made the, their argument with each other the argument in the church in Philippi. And, and people are taking sides with two different women. And Paul writes to them and he says, listen, you should not be divided you are letting the stuff of the world be your first priority and not letting the kingdom be your first priority over and informing that stuff. And for example, this letter right here that we're going to read together from Ephesians, this is called the letter of unity or the letter of light. People have called it different things, but it's a letter 
where he's trying to make sure that the church in Ephesus is united together and presenting a, a front of kingdom living in front of the rest of the world so that the rest of the world can see the way they live and will believe. Now, by the way, can I just pause here for a minute? I should have brought with me uh, this morning, but I didn't. I should have brought a dollar bill. But you know in the dollar bill, right? It says that phrase, e pluribus unum. Remember that? Anybody remember what that means? Out of many, one. E pluribus unum. Out of many, one. We have that on our money, right? Out of many, the idea is uh, people from all over the world, these immigrants from all different places have come to this one city on a shining hill, you know, this place called America. Out of many, we are one. And here is our, here is our ideology together. We don't feel very e pluribus unum right now because of that division, right? But I, what I want you to get the picture of is when Paul was writing. That's a Latin phrase, right? And we've, we've kind of adopted it for America. When Paul was writing, e pluribus unum was at his heart. He was seeing Christians fighting with one another. He was seeing them arguing with one another, and they were taking up their issues, their platforms, and they were standing on those so vehemently they were not even doing the, the kingdom values first. They were, they were more one thing than they were another. And Paul was saying, listen, remember what he said? Paul said, in Christ, we have been made one. Remember these phrases? When he said, he said something like this. He said, in Christ now, we who were all separated and were, were sinners, we have been brought into one family. He said it this way. He says, now in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew. No more. So don't argue about your Greek stuff versus your Jew stuff. That doesn't happen anymore. Because in Christ, we are one. He said, in Christ, there is no, no longer any even male or female. You remember him saying that? So don't argue about your male issues and your female issues. No, we are one. He said, in Christ, there is no slave or free. Do you get the heart of Paul? Paul is saying, listen, we are kingdom first. And all this other stuff, listen, Christ has made us one. We are one in Christ. And so when he writes to the Corinthian church, when he writes to the Philippian church, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he has this heart of e pluribus unum. Out of many now we are one. Don't fight. Don't fight with each other. Don't, don't, don't live the wrong way, giving the wrong message to the world that we are in division. When now, in Christ, we are poised to be the most united, strong, powerful force on the planet. You get the heart of Paul? Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul said it this way. He's imploring them to be one and to shine brightly. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths but only what is useful for building up as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You know, when I hear, when I hear Paul's words, I just hear a shepherd. I, I hear a, a father figure imploring 
the children in these different communities who were struggling with their own issues to come together and unite around the kingdom vision that Jesus had preached. You got your pen? I just want to share a few thoughts with you this morning that come right out of the scripture. Because right now, I just see a lot of division, a lot of fighting. And I, I know for me, I need to hear this scripture. And this week, I want to walk in this scripture. Number one, write this one down. Let no evil talk come from you. That's Paul's words, right? Let no evil talk come from you, but only that which builds up and gives grace. Now go back and look at that, look at that passage of Scripture it, where, where Paul said, let no evil talk come out of your mouth. If you've got that, that little place where it says evil talk, maybe you would underline it where it says evil talk, and right above it, would you write a little word for me? I probably should have put it on the screen for you. But write a little word for me. It's the word in Greek for what Paul used there. It's S-A-P-R-O-S, sapros. S-A-P-R-O-S. That word where he said, let no evil talk. Evil talk is sapros, all right? Now, you have experienced sapros before, all right? Sapros is this idea. I mean, I'll get, here's, here's, the, here's the metaphor. Have you ever left something in the fridge that was uh, in Tupperware before and you thought you were going to eat it? and you forgot about it. You ever done that before? All of us have done that before. I mean, you for, you, it was good when you had it, and you wanted to keep it as a leftover, and you put it in the Tupperware, and you put it, and somehow the other overtime, you forgot about it. It went way to the back, way back there, and, and one day it was time for you to clean out the fridge, right? We've all been there, right? And you start pulling stuff out, and you get to that, all right? You get to that. And, and, and in the Greek terminology, this is... Filthy, nasty stuff. And here's the image. I mean, if you've been there, what I've been there before, you opened it up and then you shut it real quick. You don't, you know, have you ever done that before? You go, oh, and here's the thought you had. I'm throwing the whole thing away, right? You just walk over to the trash can, you lift up the lid, you throw the whole thing away, Tupperware and all, because it's irredeemable, all right? It's so nasty, it's so gross, you want to be done with it. That's the image of Sapros. It is filth. It is nastiness that is of no use and has to be thrown out completely. And what Paul says, listen, Paul says, let no sapros, let no filth, let no evil, let no, let no nastiness come out of your mouth except that which is to be building, useful for building up as there is need and that your words are to give grace so what Paul is saying, listen, he's saying, listen, I'll, I'll put it Stephen's way for a minute, okay? If you are first a, a Republican or Democrat, if you're first an American, before you are a Christian, little junk's going to slip out of your mouth. And what you've been called to do is to be first kingdom, and then to let all the kingdom values that Jesus gave us let those things flow down and inform how you behave, how you act, how you talk, how you think. Do you see how easy it is to get the two flipped around? And do you see how even people in Ephesus were struggling with this? And so Paul writes them and he says, no more. No more your words like that. No more. When you speak, here are your words. You are kingdom first. Your words are always to be building up, and I like this phrase, and to be the kind of words where you are giving grace. You're giving grace to somebody. 
That's the idea of the words of a kingdom follower. Write this one down. Here's the second piece of what Paul shared in that little passage from Ephesians 4. He says, do not grieve your father by fighting. Write that down. Do not grieve your father by fighting. Paul said this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Do not grieve your father by fighting. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. It is so easy to grieve our father with our words, okay? And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you might, you might think you're standing on your nice high horse or your platform, or you, you, might, you might even, maybe even think you're speaking out of your convictions, but if you are tearing somebody down, get the picture. It's more than what's happening in that moment. There's something even cosmic that is happening. You are grieving the Holy Spirit of God in that moment. You're grieving your Father in heaven when you are attacking or hurting someone else with your words. By the way, you do not have to go far to find people who call themselves Christ followers doing this. It's all over Facebook. It's all over Twitter. I mean, let me be as frank as I can be. I read one of the posts of my own folks here at Harvest Point this week and am still praying about calling them on the carpet for words that do not build up, for words that are not grace-filled words. Paul says, your words can grieve your Father in heaven. So I would guard you today about the words that you will speak in your office, even on Tuesday or Wednesday morning. I would guard you about your words. Because your words can grieve the heart of God. This morning, I love this team. They led us in song. Those songs are straight out of Scripture. And one of the songs we sang this morning was, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, right? It's actually from a psalm that my small group was studying not long ago. It's your breath in our lungs. And that's so easy to sing on a Sunday morning, right? So we pour out our praise, and in that moment we're singing those words, we were, we're reminded that my breath is not mine. God gives me breath, right? The Bible says God gives me breath, and so with that breath, God, I pour out my praise back to you. Now, can I just flip our thinking for a minute? It's not easy and it's not comfortable. But every breath is his breath. And so when our words come out, words that are demeaning, words that are hurtful, Words that bruise, maim, wound someone. When our words come out, it's still his breath in our lungs. Now do you see how that can grieve the heart of God? He gives us breath. And with that same very breath past our vocal cords, we use that air to hurt someone else. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You were marked with a seal of the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Do not grieve. And so I would challenge you today in this very contentious week that is to be, don't let your words grieve God. Now, here's how you do that. You ready? Paul gets real applicable. He tells us to throw, on, throw off some stuff and put on some stuff, all right? So write this down. And I broke it down one by one with you. He says, throw off. I'm going to read the scripture. Put away, throw it off. From you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling, which I'll call fighting, wrangling or wrestling and slander together with all 
malice, which I looked up malice in the dictionary. It's evil intent or evil thought. Anything that's malicious in our mind or our heart, that's malice. And, and, and Paul says, throw that stuff away. Like the, uh, like the sapros, like the Tupperware junk, throw it out. Throw it out. It's got nothing. By the way, can we pause just for a minute? Everybody look up. Quit taking notes for a minute. Just look up. Would you just read those words with me real quickly? I'm going to ask you to read them out loud, okay? Ready? Here we go. Bitterness, wrath, anger, fighting, slander, evil intent, and thought. Now, do those words, tell me if I'm wrong, okay? Do those words typify, do they model the political campaigns we've seen or what? I mean, do you see it? Whether you're left or right, I don't really care. When you see those words, you see the rhetoric of the political campaigns. It's right there on the screen. It's everywhere. And so we are reminded today, Paul said, throw that stuff out. It's sapros. Get rid of it. Now here's the gospel, ready? Here's the good news. Here's who he says we're supposed to be first and foremost. He says, but put on. But put on kindness, tender heartedness, he says it. I'm going to read it from the scripture. He says, but be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So this is, the, hey, this week, I don't, whatever happens on Tuesday, we read, we read Romans 13 earlier, right? God's got his hand. Hey, if I build my theological house on anything, I build my theological house on the cornerstone that God's king. He's king. He will bring to pass what he will bring to pass. He's king. And, and man, Oscar said a little while ago, right? I mean, we've probably seen tougher days than right now. I mean, none of us would want to live in the middle of a civil war, right? And there's several of you in this room who you've lived in more division back in the, in the racial issues of the 60s than we've even facing today. Let's be honest, okay? God's king. This week, as you journey through this week, make sure you got that stuff on you right there. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. I'm going, I'm going to leave those words right there, but I want to kind of close down with a, a mental picture, okay? With those words right there behind me. This morning, I'm going to invite you to come and pray for our country, but before I do that, I, I want you to think about you, okay? I want to think about who you are. I want you to think about where you go, and I want to leave you with a mental picture. You are an ambassador. If you call yourself a Christ follower, now if you don't, if you're a seeker, and we've got people here who call themselves seekers or skeptics, then then you don't quite fit into this this thing that I'm just about to challenge everybody with. But if you call yourself a Christ follower, here's what you need to know. You are an ambassador for Jesus. So where you go, the way you talk, the way you live, the way you act, you are representing Jesus. I'll say it differently. You are an ambassador for Jesus, and every day you live, you are painting a picture for the world to see of who Jesus is like. Every day. So here's the question that I want to pose to you. Is the image that people are seeing that you're painting with your life of Jesus, is it the real image of Jesus? Or is it a disfigured image of Jesus? There's a little fresco in Spain I want to tell you about. I'm going to put a picture up here. See this fresco on the far left-hand side? That's the way it used to look. A fresco, an image of Jesus it is centuries old, but because of time and wear of elements, 
it was starting to get like the middle picture there. It was starting to get wasted away. And there was a wonderfully artistic lady in the church who, who said, hey, listen, I, I have an art degree. Allow me to come and I will, I will take the original and I'll, 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 I'll take the, the injured one, the one that's been tearing apart, I'll, I'll restore it. And so what she did in her painting was this image on the right. I don't know if you can really see that or not. But it became the whole talk of the town. It was such a poor restoration. The news stories began to cover this, this fresco that was errantly restored. They started calling it the Jesus who is a hairy monkey, all right? Because it's such a bad restoration. Now, eventually they would come back and they would try to restore it, but it, it would never be what it was originally. I just want to ask you one more time. I'm going to say it one more time. You are an ambassador, and every day that you live, the way you talk, the way you live, the way you behave, you are painting a picture for other people. And here's my question. Is the picture that you're painting the real image of Jesus, or is it a, a disfigured Jesus? So I pick up the Bible and I say, okay, God. I've been trying to be a Christian since I was 11 years old. But I want to confess to you that sometimes I'm more American than I am a Christian. Forgive me. And help me, Jesus, hear your word. I've got to be a kingdom follower first before ever I take on the garb of this culture. And my faith has got to inform my politics. So, oh God... Let the teachings of Jesus sink down in me, that when I'm wounded, I'm going to turn the other cheek, that I'm going to let my yes be yes and my no be no, that, that I'm going to do unto others as I would have them do unto me. See, it's those teachings right there that can challenge a culture towards returning back to kingdom living. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to come and just on bended knee, pray for our country. For those of you who have not yet voted, and for those of you who have voted, that's all of us, right? I want you to pray over your heart. It's quite all right this morning if you bow a knee and you just struggle with that same thing that I struggled with my professor for a little while. God, in those places where I'm too American, just break that stuff. Help me be a Christian. Would you pray for Tuesday? Would you pray for people who are going to go in that booth? Did you know that some people will go in that booth and they don't even know yet which way they're going to go? Would you pray? And I was praying with a little, folk, a little group of folks before we even came, uh, we've, we even got together as a body this morning. Would you remember that on Tuesday that, that we're electing folks into the House, into the Senate? That we're electing folks in our local communities, in our own government. So let's pray for our local community here and the folks we'll elect into those places. And let's pray that we would put people in place that would restrict evil and legislate good. And let's ask God to have his way over this election. Church, join me. Let's pray for America.